Hey friends, if you thought my own personal plugs couldn't get more grotesque, I'm delighted to announce the Sydney season of my one-woman show, The Apologists. The Apologists presents three topical stories which combined provide a powerful examination of the meaning of the act of public apology. I've had the terrifying pleasure of doing a few seasons of it in London, and now I am positively pissing at the pant to share it with Australian audiences. So come and see us at the Old 505 Theatre, January 20 to 31st. In the show notes, you'll find links to where you can buy tickets for every single member of your family this Christmas. And also the trailer. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Gabrielle Scorthorn, and this is Back from Reality. When I was 17 years old, my dad smuggled me out of a school excursion so that I could line up for hours at my local Westfield to audition for the reality television show Fresh Meat where I would be competing to be a presenter on Channel V, which sounds pretty legit. But when you're plucked from suburban obscurity and thrust into the public eye in a world of sex, drugs and rock and roll, and you're not even legal, shit goes down. What happened over the next few months shaped the rest of my life in ways that I'm still discovering today. In this series of podcasts, I will be speaking with a different guest each week from the world of reality television. These chats will cover the highs and lows of the reality TV experience, how their lives have changed as a result, and what it's like to come back from reality. My guest today is Michael Chakraverty. Michael appeared in season 10 of my lockdown love show, The Great British Bake Off. For those of you who haven't experienced the perfectly fluffy meringue that is Bake Off, this next sentence is not going to make a whole load of sense to you, and that's your fault. Michael received a Hollywood handshake in Bread Week, winning Star Baker with his Carolyn Starbread share and tear. Does it get much better than that? But as well as being an incredible baker and making one hell of a lemon and rosemary biscuit bar, Michael is also incredibly thoughtful, intelligent and open about his experiences on the show and the role that Bake Off plays, particularly in British culture. So leave your dough to prove, cut yourself a slice of Battenberg, sit back and enjoy my chat with Michael. Bake Off, which I should let you know, that got me through lockdown. I've just deep-dived Bake Off. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And your season was the first one I've ever watched. I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl over you today. I promise. (laughs) I'm going to be super professional. Were you a fan of the show before you went on? I was the biggest fan. I say the biggest fan. I mean, I've been a fan for about four or five years. Um, It's just that kind of show that you grow up with in Britain. It's the kind of show that we all just know... We know what it is. We know what's kind of going on with it. Um, and I I really loved it for a couple of years. And then the year before I went on to it, I decided to bake along. So I baked along every week and I did a theme to bake every week. I never really thought I was actually the kind of person who would end up applying to be on it and least of all being on it. But it's the kind of show that everyone watches. Every single person in the entire country watches. And it was weird when it was broadcasting because I would go to London and see Alice, for example, and I would look out the window and I'd see all the TV screens and everyone's windows and they were all watching Bake Off. Um, It's a huge thing. And I don't don't think I quite realised actually how many people watch it because when, when you watch it yourself, it feels kind of personal to you. It feels like something that you're doing on your own and it's your little 
your little comfy blanket kind of thing. So I don't think I realised quite until it was airing how broad a range of people actually watch and engage with that show. It was quite fascinating. When you say you did your own, like you baked along, did you set the tasks? Where did the inspiration come from to bake along? So making up the recipes, I basically, I found the week and I chose to do something for that week. So if it was bread week, I would make a bread. Or if it was patisserie week, I'd make something that I thought was patisserie, but clearly wasn't. Once I got into the tent, I realised what actually patisserie meant. And basically, I've always baked with my mum and my mum when I was younger. Um, it's a thing that you just kind of do in the kitchen and you just kind of get involved with. I mean, looking back at what I was making now, with what I know now, it's quite shocking. I used to think that just turning the temperature up a bit in the oven would make things cook quicker, um, including cakes, which was why they were all dry um but yeah I baked so much when I was younger and I stopped baking when I went to university um which was around 2011 to 2015 and um and then after university I didn't really have much time to bake because I was busy trying to get a career and when you're living in in shared houses it, it everything's a bit grubby isn't it everything's a bit sticky so you don't really want to bake in there but I had a really bad bout of mental health uh issues um, I have anxiety and depression and I think around, when was I applying? 2018? So probably around 2017, I had some some really difficult issues with my brain and I wasn't really able to manage it very well. So I went to therapy, which was the best thing I think I could ever have done. So I went to therapy and through the course of that therapy, I learned a lot about myself. But one of the main things that I came away from therapy thinking was you need to stop saying no, you can't. Like a lot of the time in my in my brain, I'll just say, no, I can't do that. Uh, no, I'm not able to do that. I'm not good enough to do that. And so a big thing from therapy was me trying to learn to say yes to things. And as soon as I said, no, I can't do that, I was like, I need to do that. <laughs> um, and you can see where this is going. So I baked along <laughs> with Bake Off that Christmas, uh, or that, that year up to Christmas. And then around Christmas time, uh, someone said, oh, the applications for Bake Off are open. Would you look at applying? And um, I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. And as soon as the words left my mouth, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to have to do that. And I did. And you know what? It was the best thing I've ever done. And I've learned so much from it. Now, I'm aware that you can't give too many details, too many nitty gritties of the actual casting process itself. But roughly, how long does it take? Like, how long are you kind of in this limbo waiting to know if you're going to go on Bake Off? A very long time. So the application form, uh, I think I actually filmed it in, in well, I don't know, October, November time, probably the end of not end of October. Yeah, I mean, I'm focusing on the date and that's not relevant. Uh, yes, end, <laughs> end of October. No, that's what that's the question. No, it was the date. No. <laughs> Um, but the application form is about 10 pages long and it's full of basically kind of working out who you are, working out your vibe as a person. Um, and then there's questions about biscuits, bread, pastry, desserts, meringues. Uh, what else is there in, in baking? Basically, if you think of all the weeks in Bake Off, they have a, a page per week kind of thing. And you have to say the your favourite biscuit to bake, your least favourite biscuit to bake, um, the hardest biscuit you find to bake, the biscuits you don't like baking, um, the biscuits you haven't tried yet, um, the, the best thing about baking biscuits. You have to do all that for every single category. And then after that, it kind of started, the ball kind of starts rolling. But there was various auditions, both on the phone and in person. And that kind of took between the end of October. And I found out I was on the show in March. So 
a very long period, including some quite heavy vetting, I would say. They're quite careful about who they put on and you do get to consult with psychologists as part of that process as well, which is really great, I think. And because you'd mentioned that you'd had quite a rough kind of bout with your, your mental health just before you'd applied, really, did that come up a lot when, when you said that you had access to psychologists? Was that a, a factor in your casting process? I think they, I was always very open about it and I was kind of open about why I was applying. I think that one of the biggest things with Bake Off is they're quite careful to make sure they're not just they're not just getting people who want to be on TV because that's not what the show is. Um, there's other shows for that. This is meant to be more pastoral, more friendly, more homely, and therefore they want those kinds of people on. So I was quite clear about when I was auditioning, talking about this is actually to prove to myself that I can do something and I want to be able to prove to myself that I can do things. And like every stage I got to in the audition process was like a victory for me because it was like, gosh, wow, I got further than I ever thought I would get. Like I got further than the application form to start with. I didn't even think I would fill in the application form because that felt too big as well. So for me, I was learning that I was I was stronger or a bit, I suppose, better than I thought I was every time I got through a stage. But part of that process was me being open with with the, the producers and the casting team by saying, I can't believe this is happening. Um, but also, I talked about why I was applying. I talked about that therapy I'd been to. I talked about mental, my mental health issues. Because I feel like when reality TV shows are taking a person on, I feel like they they take all of that person on. And so it felt like it was only fair to them for me to tell them all of me so that they knew what they were getting. Um and I think that stood me in really good stead when I needed the support later on in the season. Um, they were able to give me that because they kind of knew where I was coming from, which was really important, I think. Um, and I think, sadly, some reality TV shows don't offer the same levels of support. And I think also, to be fair, some contestants probably aren't as open about some of the challenges they've faced or who they are as people because they want to get on the show. And I think that's why it's different about Bake Off because actually you don't think of Bake Off as being reality TV. I look at the casting of that show and I just think it is so precise and well done, you know, because it's exactly what you said. It's people who love to bake for such an ingrained reason, whether it be family or culture, and that just shines through so beautifully in the casting. From the, from the point that you got told in March, yep, you're on, to when you go on, how much work are you having to do? Because I had a mate heading into MasterChef and they have to learn every kind of cooking technique. They need to have this kind of base level of skill before they head in. Did you have a lot of prep work to do before you went in the tent? Yes, <laughs> is the answer to your question. Next question. No. Um, <laughs> in March, we found out we were on in March and we started filming in April. Um, so... Uh, you have to get all of your recipes ready before you enter the tent. So that's the recipes for the entire season. So you need to have all of the recipes that you will bake in the tent done by the time you start filming. So you have four weeks to create 20 recipes. And a big thing about Bake Off is that you continue doing your day job. You don't stop anything. You do it secretly, sort of, at the weekends. Um, so... I work. I worked at the time as a theatre manager, um, so I'd be doing eight-hour shifts, generally from about 3pm till about 11pm, maybe midnight. Um, and I also work as a fitness instructor, so I do a couple of classes every other day kind of thing in the week. So I was having to kind of 
fit in around around those two jobs which I couldn't leave um or stop doing for any reason had to fit in kind of writing 20 recipes in four weeks which isn't very much time obviously and some of the recipes that you're having to make you've never heard of before so in, in my season we had to make a Malaysian grilled layer cake called a kek lapis sarawak which I had never heard of so it's not just that you have to write a recipe it's you have to research what that cake is experiment with how how you might be able to make it and then make it so it's not very much time and that's why when you get into the tent when the judges come up to you and they say so have you practiced this and you say oh well not in full I haven't really had time and when you're at home you're like why haven't you practiced this <laughs> you're like this is the bake-off why have you not practiced one of the most <laughs> for one of the most intense shows ever but you just don't have time there is just no time um uh, but I think also it's worth noting that that's why the person who goes home in week one is always so emotional and why everyone is so emotional when the person in week one goes home because that person has had to make all the recipes for the full season and no one will ever get to see them. They will just disappear into the ether and I think um, I think as ev- all of the bakers know what that feels like and what that must feel like and so um whenever I've watched it at home previously I've been like oh why are they so sad it's only been one week get a grip kind of thing whereas actually there's so much work their experience started in October if they applied then and it's gone all the way through to then and they no longer got to share um everything that they got to I mean everyone who goes into that tent could win so I would like to see a special of all the week one eliminees coming back and just to see just to see what they could do yes the unshown recipes what a great festive special right okay we're keeping that one under our hats that's for (laughs) us guys and that makes so much sense because if you're going to have to do all of the recipes you are then visualizing your entire journey and relationship with the show are you allowed to change them at all like can you kind of get four weeks in and go oh no actually I want to do this or are you locked in you can change them a little bit so there's you can make tweaks in the prac in the weeks in between so we'd film our travel down Friday night and travel back Monday morning um so we'd film at the weekend Saturday Sunday and there'd be long grueling filming days um so you've kind of got between Monday and maybe Wednesday to make any final tweaks so that they can order in the ingredients and all that kinds of things. So you can kind of, if you've learned how to make lemon curd in a technical, you can then use that later on in the season. And I think you saw it in my season where Jamie, um, who left in week two, accidentally glazed his fig rolls with egg glaze um, in, in the technical. And then in the final, they had to make an illusion uh, picnic basket. So David made fig rolls that looked like sausage rolls because they'd been egg glazed. And that was like a running joke within the season. So you can kind of see how things can progress and change. That said, this year's season, so in 2020, they filmed in a Bake Off bubble, which was an entirely different uh, circumstance for them. They all basically went into a lockdown hotel for, uh, I think, six weeks, six and a half weeks. They basically booked out the hotel. Everyone in the hotel was quarantining, including the staff. And that therefore meant that they couldn't really change their recipes. They didn't have the time that they could do that. They didn't have the week off in between. They just had two days off in between each episode. So they weren't able to change quite as much as people normally are. But I think it's quite nice the the fact that you can change your recipe slightly because it kind of shows that you're learning and you're thinking and you're trying to progress and change. And I mean, there's some things I learned to make that I'd never made before, um, such as jam, can you believe? Um, so, yeah, that's an exclusive for you there. I popped your jam cherry. I love that exclusive. Thank you. <laughs> How do you think you would have gone 
with that model of Bake Off? Because, you know, if you've got the weeks in between, that's a little time to kind of decompress from this incredibly intense environment in the tent. Is it easier just kind of being there the whole time or do you think your model's a bit easier? I think there's a difference um, both kind of mentally and practically. I think uh, practically when we came home, we had to go back to our day jobs. So I was still having to fit 40 hours of work at my day job plus another five or six hours at my other job. So I was trying to fit nearly 50 hours of work into those five days as well as practising. So practically, I didn't have very much practice time, which was a nightmare for me. So for the bakers who were in the Bake Off bubble, they had two full days in between each episode where they had pure uninterrupted practice time because there was nothing else for them to be doing. But then on the flip side of that, mentally, they were separated from all their loved ones. They were separated from their family and friends who given given the support that I so desperately needed. And the time scale again, there was no time to decompress because they only had those two days and they were still baking through those two days. So I think I would have found it probably harder. And I think I would have found it harder when I was eliminated as well, because it's kind of like a summer camp that you're no longer part of, whereas when you're eliminated in my season, we all secretly drove around and met each other and kind of hung out at the weekends when everyone else was filming. So I think I, would, I, prefer, it, I prefer it my way. And I've thought about this quite a lot, actually. Would I do Bake Off again? And I would, but I, I would always know it would never be as good as what I, what I experienced the first time with my group of bakers at the time that I was doing it. It was the right time in my life. And it was the right people um, and it was the right circum... Everything was right around it. So I think if I was ever to do it again, I would be chasing a high that I would never get again. It's like a drug, just chasing that that first baking high. You have no idea. It's absolutely like like a drug. It, become, it kind of takes over your world, if I'm honest. And I think in a slightly unhealthy way, probably, especially for me, and it's taken me up until probably uh, March, April, May, that time this year to kind of separate myself from from Bake Off. I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it's still incredible. I still watch it. I still adore it. I still speak to the producers. I still speak to everyone who was on my season. But I think there's, a, there's an element of when you leave Bake Off or, or when it finishes airing, so it normally finishes airing around November time. I think our final was on Halloween um, or just before. And after it, your life is just, you are Michael from Bake Off, Michael from Bake Off. Everything is about Bake Off. Everyone wants to talk about Bake Off, all these kinds of things. And that's great. And I, I loved it. But I think I began to lose a little bit of a sense of who I was. Um, and after Bake Off, you get lots of cool opportunities and things like that. But you you begin to forget that you were Michael before Bake Off. And I began to yearn earlier this year to sort of be Michael who was on Bake Off, not Michael from Bake Off and um, and I found that a really interesting move and I'm still not fully got there yet really but processing the kind of the aftermath almost is is quite challenging um, because people discover it all the time I mean I get messages on Instagram of people who are just discovering my season now um, so it's immediate for them but for me I'm trying to learn to put a bit of distance between me and Bake Off looking back on it like a fond holiday not like a life-altering event, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I want to go into a lot of detail of that a little bit later on, but I do want to hear about the first day that you step into the tent. Can you remember what that was like? 
I remember we were driving down, you drive down in a, and you stay in a different hotel every week um, and just because of um, secrecy and confidentiality and you, you drive in in this bus and I remember driving down, kind of down the road that led towards this country manor and I could see the two peaks of the tent over the hill and I just thought, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God, it's happening. We'd all met in the hotel the night before, so the bakers had kind of begun to get to, get to know each other, but everyone was still quite nervous and nervous, excited, and some people were bustling and some people were quite quiet. And I remember we, you walk in and you kind of go through your recipes and you learn how, you learn how the tent works. And I remember just kind of staring around myself, like could not, I couldn't quite understand that it was happening. But what was really, what was really great was they take your phones off you. And, I, and as a millennial, it's a strange thing for me to be saying that was really great. But it was because it properly grounded you because you weren't able to take photos of things. You weren't able to text your friends and be like, you're going to never guess what's just happened. You were just there with these other people, experiencing it with these other people. You were all nervous. You were all excited. None of you knew how the ovens worked. There were these people taking photos of you that you knew were going to be shared around the internet widely in November. It was all really, really surreal. But those first steps into the tent, I don't actually remember because it all just kind of... There was so much to take in. I don't think I was able to. The main thing I remember was they assign your benches and you, and you switch benches every week. And I remember they'd put the picture of me from my very first audition in person on my bench. And I remember being livid because I looked awful. Um, <laughs> and that's the, that's the first main thing I remember from the tent. <laughs> I was wearing a lovely mustard t-shirt, but like facially it wasn't great. And I was sad because I thought they'd been looking at that picture for months. And I thought, God, I, can, I, I promise I'm at least, at least a six out of 10, not a four. <laughs> <laughs> You were saying, you know, they take your phones from you and th and that's nice because that is a grounding experience. It is a little bit isolating as well and I understand that they want it for that secrecy and to kind of keep you in the in the world. When you go home, are you kind of bound to some confidentiality? Are you allowed to talk about what's going on with your close family and friends? Or uh, No, it's a secret. Um, you can talk about it with your close family. My mum and my, my mum and dad knew, and three of my uh, four of my friends knew at work um, and outside of work. So I had about six people um, that knew. Uh, I think some others had potentially guessed because I'd gone absent, wasn't replying to texts, and was baking a lot. But I never felt isolated because those friends my, and my parents were so so supportive. Like every Saturday night, you get your phone back on the bus home, and the bus home from. The, the tent was really quiet because everyone would be texting or calling their parents and talking through what had happened. And I had a WhatsApp group which I sent around every week being like, oh, here's what's happened today. Um, and every Saturday night, they'd all be like, they'd all get a text from me saying, Michael's going home, I'm going home, going home. And every Sunday night, they'd be like, oh, no, it's fine. Actually, it's OK. Because um, <laughs> on a Saturday, I was convinced I was going home every single week. Um, but yeah, it was... I actually think it was worse for them than for me. I quite enjoyed that that enforced liberation from my phone um but for my parents and for my friends they were sat waiting all day no idea what had happened to me all day until about 7 or 8 p.m when they would get a phone call or a text being like here's here's where we're at and I think I made it worse for them because every Saturday night I'd say I'm going home that's it I was awful I'm terrible um and then so on the Sunday they'd spend all day thinking I hope he's okay for going home and then Sunday night I'd be like no no I'm fine actually <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah no it was quite intense um but I really appreciated that and I think 
what actually happened is it brought me closer to those friends during the week because they they began to learn exactly what I needed. Like my friend Sarah would come to my house. She would just walk into the kitchen and she would just start washing up while I was baking because she knew that's what I needed. She needed someone someone there to just help a bit with the, with the kind of physical work of it, but also that emotional support. Or my friend Nick would come in with a meal that he'd, he'd made because he would know that I wouldn't want to cook that night because I'd been too busy baking all day. So he'd make sure I ate a meal. Or my parents who would call me every other night and force me to speak for an hour so that I wouldn't be baking just to take a bit of a break. So I think actually it brought me closer to those friends that I did share it with. Although some people, some of my friends were furious when they found out I'd been doing it all summer and they hadn't known. <laughs> so uh, there was that. Look, he's either on Bake Off or having an affair. He's <laughs> yeah. just going away every weekend. I didn't even tell my brothers. Um, they had no idea. They didn't even know I'd applied. Um, I have this thing when I'm applying for anything where I don't want to tell anyone. It in case I don't get it. So I'd rather not have to tell lots of people I didn't get something. So I didn't tell any of my family apart from my parents. So my brothers, I never found a time to tell them because I hadn't told them I was applying. And then I got on the show and I only had four weeks to create all these recipes. And then I was filming. So there was no time um, for me to sit down and have a phone call with them. So they never found, they didn't know I was on the show until about week five, I think, of filming. Um, and my mum was like, Michael, it's time. You need you need to tell your family that you are on this show. So I was like, I don't have time, I don't have time. So it was my mum that told them in the end, because I think basically she couldn't hold it in and keep it secret from my brothers who were asking how I was. And she was like, mm, fine. <laughs> so um, That is awful. You're poor mother. <laughs> I know. I mean, I would have told them. I just didn't have the capacity. And obviously because I'd then gone silent and wasn't replying to texts, wasn't replying to phone calls, I missed a couple of people's birthdays. I just couldn't focus on anything else. My mum was busy trying to cover for me at all times. And eventually at week five, she was like, that's enough. I'm telling your brothers. And I was like, okay, it's fine. What an amazing mother. The experience that, you know, you mentioned that you were having some anxiety attacks throughout and because you are working your two jobs during the week, you're baking. Do they give you much support during the week in terms of help with your practice? Are they pitching in and buying ingredients for you during the week so that you can practice? Like, what support are they giving you? You mentioned you had your own support group, but is the show giving you support during the weeks as well? Yeah, yeah. So you're in touch with the producers through the week. Um, I mean, there was a, a wonderful producer who I would call every time I had to unmould a cake. I would just call her so she'd be on the phone while I did it. Um, so they were constantly on the phone, constantly at the end of the phone to talk to as you're as you're going through it. They can't give you baking advice. That's not fair um, because it is a competition at the end of the day. But they they offer you all the emotional support I think that you need, and it drew us quite close together actually, which was really nice. And there was also a psychologist that you, that was available should you so need them. I found the process really mentally taxing, I think because of why I'd done it. I think partly because I'd, I'd gone into there trying to prove to myself that I could do something. So that meant that when I wasn't able to do something, I felt like I was proving myself right, if that makes sense. Like I was, I've been telling myself I couldn't do things and if I couldn't do them, I was like, well, there you go. You clearly can't. And I think that really came to a head in week five um, where we had to do a technical and we had to make shoe pastry, which is 
I find true pastry fairly easy to, to make. It's one of the things I actually make fairly often. And um, I couldn't make it work in the tent. I basically just put too much egg in. But when the instructions say make shoe pastry and with nothing else, your brain just goes blank and you have to kind of just like fight your way through and try and hope, hope for the best. And I think it, it, it fell apart. It wasn't working. And basically just, I think what happened in the tent was it, I was under that pre- that time pressure. I had the cameras there. Everything was going on. And I suddenly wasn't able to do something properly for the first time in that I might not have anything to present kind of thing. And I think it began to, in my mind, I began to kind of go, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? You're in above your head. Like, you're, you're out of your depth. Um, it began to prove true to me all the things all those darkest fears that I'd always been telling myself no you can't and I was like well perhaps I've been telling myself that for a reason and I think that was kind of the thought process that was going through my head and I could feel my anxiety growing and growing and growing and it got to a point where I just couldn't control it anymore and um I don't really remember much I don't think people do often when you have panic attacks but I am remember it going very dark and I couldn't really see or hear very much. I remember Noel coming right, coming straight over, uh, Noel Fielding, one of the presenters. And I remember Noel and one of the producers kind of talking me through like mindfulness, like, can you feel your fingers? Can you feel your toes? What can you smell? What can you see? And um, I kind of managed to pull myself back around from it. And um, Sandy, uh, who was the presenter at the time, Sandy Toxvig, also came and stood behind the camera, just behind the camera in my eyeline so that, so that I knew she was there, um, which was really lovely. And I kind of, I managed to pull myself out of it somehow. Um, and then annoyingly, I had another one and it happened straight away again. Um, and uh, it was really, it was really scary, if I'm honest, because I began to f- fully believe those dark thoughts. And I think anyone who has anxiety and depression can understand it when, you, when you, you're always fighting off these thoughts. But as soon as you start to agree with them, that's when everything starts to kind of fall around you. But what I think was really good was that everyone else there, all the producers, everybody knew that I had anxiety. They knew I had depression. They knew this wasn't new for me as well. They knew that I would find a way through it. And I did. And um, I've only ever watched that episode once. I've not watched it back again because I find it too uncomfortable to watch. Um, because I think you can see I'm, I'm really distressed in that episode. Like, I'm really not well. And um, what I think is, is kudos to Love Productions, uh, who produced Bake Off, is that they've kept it in. They haven't called it a panic attack. They've not labelled it as anything. But they keep it there. They show you what happens. And um, when I watched it, I found it upsetting. But I also felt really proud. Number one, proud that I kind of watched myself pull myself out of it and watched myself carry on and um, stick at it. And I watched myself use those those strategies that I've used for anxiety all for many years, which are uh, things like you can, you can do anything for five minutes, just counting through the next five minutes and then the next five minutes and the next five minutes. And for me, it's important that I stick at something and I don't take a break because if I take a break, I know it won't start again. It's like when you're doing burpees. If you stop doing burpees halfway through, you're not going to finish. So it's like that for my brain and watching myself use those strategies and watching them work gave me lots of confidence in myself. But also I felt really proud that that was being shown, that it was a real moment. I mean, Bake Off's full of real moments, but it was a real moment of challenge and adversity for me and it was shown and I got so many messages on social media when it was aired of people re- relating to it. And even though Bake Off never called it a panic attack, everyone watching could tell that's what it was. It wasn't just me being upset. And that was really kind of amazing. I mean, I, in, the, in the tent, I think it was quite hard for my contestants, my fellow contestants. Some of them had never seen a panic attack before. And Michelle, bless her, this, you didn't see this in the show, but Michelle came running over and was like, right, what do I need to do to help you here? 
and she sadly had to go back to her bench because it's, it's a technical and you're not allowed to help each other but they were all trying to find ways of helping which was really really lovely but yeah it was a it was a horrible experience but i think it's made me stronger definitely and up until week five in the in the show i've been enjoying myself but there'd been this real undercurrent of anxiety and fear the whole way through and then week six and week seven when i was tragically sent home in an awful moment for 2019 uh, <laughs> uh, no in week six and seven i felt so much better and i think actually watching it you can see me lift because i kind of go it's going to be okay like whatever happens the worst has happened already. Like the worst that can happen now is I get sent home and get to have a nice long sleep and maybe like eat a pizza in the bath or something. So it was fine. And I was happy to go from week six and seven. And that made it, that made me feel lighter, made me feel brighter. So I wouldn't say I'm glad I had the panic attack, but I think it was a really important thing to have happened. I think in terms of, if you want to go there, my personal journey. (laughs) Yes, I want to go there. Thank you so much for, look, honestly, I've got like six questions like, is it really as idyllic as it presents? But you you saying that there was this big team effort to make sure that you were okay kind of makes those questions a little bit redundant. Well, to be to be honest, it is as idyllic as it looks. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Honestly, like, there'd be moments in between filming where Henry and I would just sit underneath a tree in the garden, just in, in silence, just looking just underneath a tree, looking out at the sunny, sunny, idyllic English countryside with little little birds and there were lambs were born on the field just next door to us. Like it was so stunning. Like I look back at that time and I just think, wow, I was so lucky. Um, It was just so beautiful and gorgeous. And I got to spend it with all these amazing people, both behind and in front of the camera. It was just, oh, it was just, it was just incredible. Like I say, it was that kind of high that I will never replicate in the same way. And it's been a big part of my life recently is is thinking about that um, and kind of going, acknowledging that high for what it was. And not not searching the exact same high, searching for different highs, I think is really important for me now. Gosh, I sound like I'm an addict. I don't take drugs, no. just to be clear. How did you find, you know, you were saying that in week six and seven, you did get out of that hole. And also, I just wanted to let you know, I have severe performance anxiety and I have had a panic attack on stage in front of a full audience. So I am right there with you. I I completely understand what you're saying. We were talking to... Um, well, I, you know, I've been talking to performance psychologists for years uh, with my own mental health, but but also on the show we've interviewed um, a psychologist specifically who specialises in reality television, and she says that there's quite often this um, like a a serotonin and a, and a hormonal fallout after you leave a television set because, and especially you mentioning, you know, your your adrenal glands are just running and running and running, and then you leave. And there is like a chemical fallout and it is difficult for people to kind of slip back into their lives. And I was just wondering how how you found coming out of the tent and back into, Michael, your life. That's a good question. I was quite happy, if I'm honest. I was quite content. I think I felt like I'd proven myself to myself. I felt like I had proven myself in terms of baking, I mean, I got to week seven. That's not too bad, really. And I think mainly I was relieved, if I'm honest. I felt like I'd done, I'd done enough. I'd, I'd, I'd had my time and I wasn't really looking for anything more than just proving myself. And I felt like I'd done that. There was the main feeling I remember, aside from that relief and that kind of personal, oh, wasn't that great? 
um, was FOMO. <laughs> I had a, the, a major fear of missing out. And I knew uh, that the, the following weekend, it was actually quite um, fortunate because I had a, had a wedding that I was meant to be going to. So it worked out perfectly when I was eliminated. Um, so I was at that wedding, but all I could think about all day was oh, I wonder what they're doing now. They're probably finished their, their signature now. They're probably finished their technical now. So for me, the main thing I found was I missed not being there with my friends. And I found that quite hard. But overall, like, I think I felt okay. And then there was a, go- a glorious August before we were announced where no one knew who we were, which meant that we, were, we could kind of hang out. And so Henry and I were going to the theatres. Amelia and I were spending weeks together. I was, I was in Leeds seeing Elena. Like I was able to do all this cool stuff with my friends. And that's different now. Whenever we go out together, we're generally spotted now and um so there was a glorious month where we were kind of able to be who we wanted to be and and I feel like you learn whether you like someone on Bake Off but you become friends with them afterwards because you haven't had time to learn much about their lives or their partners or their children or anything like that so we had a, a glorious August and then as soon as we were announced the anxiety came back not not it went away I mean I'm anxious all the time but I mean specifically show related because I kind of became aware that it was going to be, that people were going to see me and people were going to know who I was and people were going to be judging me based on basically an hour of television a week. And I found that that thought quite hard. And I think the adrenaline kind of kicked right back in then. And the first couple of weeks were great for me. But then in week four, I had a disaster because my cake tore in half. And in week five, I had the panic attacks. So I kind of dreaded those two weeks and I found them really hard to watch and I got a lot of trolling online um, around week five um, about men crying on television and how that was really, it completely emasculated me and I, I was a weak, I was a weak this and I was a weak that. I'm not going to repeat most of the things that they said, to be honest, but I found that quite challenging to kind of deal with. But most of all, I, I mean, I was lucky that I was fairly well received by the public, so I wasn't trolled horribly um but those messages do stick in your head a bit honestly i think i was kind of just riding the wave and just loving the wave of it there's a there's a strange kind of pressure with instagram where you start to kind of compare your followers against someone else's followers and think gosh am i do they why don't they like me in this way and why do they like them in this way and, and that's quite a hard thing to sort of wrap your head around um broadcast was a journey and I think I enjoyed it for the most part because I enjoyed I kind of liked knowing what happened <laughs> I liked knowing the secrets um and I think some of the contestants found it quite frustrating because things they thought were going to be showed in the in the final edit weren't shown um but I quite liked that because it meant that this summer this summer holiday we all had together it meant that there were some things that were just ours and there's some things that will always just be ours and I like that um those moments sat with Henry underneath the trees or uh, playing a, a game of catch in the in the gardens outside the tent with a lemon from the lemon tree that just happened to be outside like that kind of stuff that's mine and I like that very much and then after broadcast you just have to start kind of negotiating your way back into well I say I suppose to, to coin a phrase I don't know um Back, back to reality, back from reality. Probably. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm probably going to use that in marketing from henceforward. So thank you very much. <laughs> With everyone that I speak to on this show, they all mention the social media trolling, comparing. Um, it is a it is a huge mind game, and and actually there's a real skill to it, and and you kind of need to know how to use social media. Does the show help you? in that respect to an extent um there's 
I, they, they help as much as I, I suppose they can. They have a social media team that are really great. Um, but I don't think anyone sort of can help you, if I'm honest, because it's different for everybody and there's no real rhyme or reason. I mean, there's some of my Bake Off batch that are really popular on Instagram and some that are really not as popular. And I don't know why, because to me, they both look great on their Instagram presences. And it's, it's, so it's hard to kind of say, the comparing is inevitable. And um, I think I spent a long time trying not to compare myself to other people on the internet. And eventually Priya, um, one of my Bake Off friends was like, why, why shouldn't you? It's natural that you would. And I kind of, I think the biggest thing for me with social media was accepting that all the feelings I was feeling were okay to feel. Like it was okay to compare myself to somebody else because of course I was going to do that. And it's okay to search name on, on Twitter because of course I was going to do that. One of the biggest pieces of advice I've given this year to this year's batch of bakers is to not pretend that you're not going to search your name on Twitter because that you, you get this guilt because you're like, well, I was sort of asking for it because I went looking for, for it. I was asking to get upset because I went looking for this hatred. And that's not the case. I mean, it's natural if you're going to be on television, it's natural for you to want to know what people are saying about you. Of course you do. And of course people are going to search themselves on Twitter. But it becomes this sort of dirty little secret that you do that you just don't tell anyone that you searched your name so that everyone thinks that you're good and you've risen above it and it's fine. Whereas actually, I refuse to believe that everyone on my season of Bake Off didn't look on Twitter for their name. That's impossible. And actually, you getting upset by what's on Twitter, that's not your fault. That's the person's fault who said it. You looking on Twitter doesn't mean you are culpable for something that somebody else has said. And that took me a long time to understand and comprehend. But actually, it was one of the best things I learned because I slowly began to kind of go, oh, okay, right, okay, it's fine. I, again, I was lucky because I was fairly popular in my season. I got a bit of trolling around the crying and, uh, and the the general generic homophobic stuff, which is just not inventive enough at this point, frankly. I mean, I think it's all, it's all been said. Um, uh, my favourite ones are the DMs that are like, you're gay. And I'm like, good, uh, great. Keenly <laughs> observed, my friend. <laughs> it's brilliant. So yeah, there was, so I was lucky, but there were some, what was really hard was when a popular person went home versus somebody else who was slightly less popular, but still deserved to be in the tent that person got the hatred because people, I think, a lot of the time confuse supporting somebody by slagging off their opponent. And that's not, that's not support. That's not real support. I don't want your support if your support is slagging off the person I was up against. That's not, that's not right. You can support someone and go, I'm really sad to see you go. I think you agree. That's fine. That's enough. Um, and I, and I see it every, with lots of different reality TV shows that the only way that someone thinks they can show support for somebody is by slagging off their pal. Um, and what's even worse with Bake Off is that we actually are friends. So it's hard to see somebody that you are genuinely friends with being being attacked in, in your name. <laughs> That's really rough. And I, again, recognising my privilege of being well received, I was able to reply to a couple here and there of, of, of bad comments and being like, hi, I don't agree with this. Imagine reading this about yourself kind of thing. And I and I was able to do that and put my point across and that kind of quelled things. But I was also very aware that if somebody else who perhaps wasn't being as well received at that moment had written that sentence, they would have been torn apart for saying it. So there's a weird double standard of having to be aware of how you're being received in terms of how you're able to respond to trolls. 
And that's really rough. And at the time, Twitter didn't have that feature where you can remove comments on your posts. So anything you put up, people could and would go in on. And people in my season got death threats for something as simple as staying in the competition or getting Star Baker. And I think that's just awful. I've had a couple of death threats myself, but that's been post-show because I've kind of decided to make phrase into making public comments on politics and and trans rights and things. Not that death threats are ever acceptable or understandable, but I can almost more understand someone giving me death threats about LGBTQ plus stuff. But it's over bread. Yeah, <laughs> like, really? over a lemon drizzle. <laughs> what happened to you as a child, babe? Yeah, like... yeah someone needs to like, go for a long walk, I think, is what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, but then what's really sad is that, that these comments come from within the Bake Off family as well. And um, you see on social media that every so often someone will say something that's really hurtful. And I think perhaps they've had too long away from Bake Off, or not too long, but a period of time away from Bake Off. Or that distance seems to... I find it really upsetting and sad to see. Um, And uh, recently on on this year of Bake Off, there was a bit of a controversial decision, which I happen, for the the record, I actually think it was the correct decision. But there were people from uh, all over Twitter. Is this Hermine and Laura? This was Hermine and Laura, yeah. And, um, I mean, the way Bake Off works is it always, always, always comes down to what you do on that week. If you do badly on that week, you go home. That is how it works. I mean, it's bottom of the list on Signature, second on the list in Technical, and then bottom of the list in Showstopper. Laura was second bottom in Signature, bottom in Technical, and maybe like, and second bottom in Showstopper. The Showstopper is the biggest deal of the entire episode. Um, you spend about four and a half hours making your, your, your Showstopper. The other challenges are about two hours. So you think about it in time, basically you would need to have an outstanding, outstanding signature and an outstanding technical that's perfect for you to be in the bottom of the showstopper and not go home. It's basically a game of two halves. So therefore, I think it was correct that Ermine went home. Regardless of any of that, even if it wasn't correct that Ermine went home, the hatred that's got been sent at Laura is unacceptable. It is absolutely abhorrent. And, and it's not even... like There's been horrible, vile comments everywhere. But even stuff saying... Laura has been terrible for the entire season. And people don't think that's mean. That is mean. Imagine reading that about yourself when you have spent six weeks of your life away from your loved ones to film this show. You've applied for it in October. So it's basically gone for nearly a year now. And people are saying you were terrible the whole, the whole time you did that. That's a horrible thing to read about yourself. But people think, oh, I'm just stating facts. That's not facts. What you're seeing is what you've seen on the show. And I, basically, I think the bottom line is people often don't realise they are trolling when they are trolling. And I found it really uh, annoying and frustrating to see people from Love Island who have gone out previously to speak about, speak out against online trolling to then start saying these things about Laura on social media. And I thought, that's not right. Because you don't realise what you're doing is, is still trolling, actually. And yeah, I think people forget that social media is media. When you are writing on social media, you are essentially like a mini journalist and they don't realise the weight of their words and people don't realise what they're doing actually could be hurtful. So generally, if I'm replying to a troll, all I'll say is, imagine reading this about yourself. Because that's all I want them to do. 
And that, that's all I think of when I'm writing, I write a live blog about Bake Off and of course I'm rinsing them because of course it's funny. Some of the things they do and say are absolutely hilarious. But whenever I'm writing something, I think, how would this feel if I read it about me? And if I've, if I've got something mean to say, I'll text it in a, in a message to my friend because of course I think I have feelings and thoughts about people and things that I think, but I know when to keep them private. I know when to keep them public. And I think that's the most important thing, just to lead with kindness, I suppose. Gosh, I got my soapbox there. I do apologise. I'll dismount now. No, I love that soapbox. And I think it's really important, just for the record, to state, with Laura's baking, I have fantasised about eating multiple of the things oh that my God. come out on that Me bench. Too. So <laughs> I just want that on the record. You touched on something there about like a people from within the Bake Off family commenting. It seems just inconceivable to me that because you are at the end of the day in a competition. Is there a competitive vibe there? A hundred percent there is not a competitive vibe. Can confirm no competitive vibe. I think this is what makes Bake Off different from every other reality TV show that exists is that we all, I think you touched on it at the very beginning of this, uh, where you said that it, people are on that show because they have an ingrained love for baking for whatever reason. Mine is that it comes from mental health. Someone else's is they like to be creative. It's someone else's like they like to bake from their garden. Someone else's could be that they just love Halloween. Like it's like so many different things. But it all comes down to a love for baking, not a love for wanting to win. Yes, there are more competitive bakers than there are others, but generally... Everyone's there because they want to just do their best and have a nice time. And that's why we help each other, because we all know what we've gone through to create those recipes to get them into the tent. So Priya is a really good example of this in my season. I was having a nightmare with my with my bake. She hadn't finished her caramel on the bench behind me, but she could see that I needed help. And she knew that I'd been struggling with this bake for a week because I told her. So she was like, she abandoned her caramel and came over to try and help me because I was in a bit of a flap and didn't know what to do because she knew what that bake meant to me and in the end with her caramel it didn't really work she just threw some brown food coloring in it and just drizzled it on anyway and no one noticed <laughs> I don't know if we've seen it this that much this season but we have seen it a bit actually especially from lovely Laura but you you go over and help each other on everyone's benches because you need that you need that support and and everyone in that tent knows what it feels like. So everyone in that tent wants everyone else to succeed. At the bottom bottom line, if someone wants to win on Bake Off, they want to win because they deserve to win, not because somebody else failed. You want everyone else to produce the best that they can produce. And that's what I think is amazing. And, and I think that's the best part about Bake Off. I mean, the moments I treasure the most is when other bakers would come to my bench and just help me out with a couple of bits. Or even if I just wanted to overturn a tin, someone would come over and help me. And I think that's lovely. That's, that's what Bake Off is. Bake Off is kindness and people helping each other. <laughs> And that's what makes it so lovely. You don't get that so much on other shows, I don't think. I also just wanted to say I, I watched your episode when you were having a panic attack when I was in quarantine and having severe heart palpitations and it helped me so much to watch a show like that and it brought me back. So I really want you to know that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. I, I did want to ask you about the representation of gender on Bake Off because baking is something that I feel is kind of stereotypically and traditionally thought of as domestic and therefore feminine. Um, but Bake Off has this, like, mask AF approach with Paul Hollywood fingering and flicking food around <laughs> um, each week. Do you think that Bake Off has changed people's perceptions on not just baking but gender roles at large? That is a really, really good question and not one I've been asked before. I think there's... Um, 
Paul has bread week, doesn't he? And that's the kind of masculine bit of baking because you're punching things. Oh, um, yeah. But I, th- <laughs> but I think it's really interesting seeing the men that come on the show, um, uh, the, the broad variety of men that come on the show. And, and I think I don't really remember what the world was like before Bake Off, really. But I do think it's sort of, it has definitely broadened people's minds as to what baking is. And it is no longer sort of a, of a domestic activity because I think it's become more of a baking's kind of left the kitchen in a stereotypically gendered sense it's left the kitchen because it's become a kind of a fun activity like you'll you'll do a bake this afternoon as a fun thing to do not just as a you must feed your family and be changed to the to the cooker and I think it's also become a bit of a um someone can have a laugh trying to make something that they know they'll never manage to make but also I think it's become a bit of a mental health activity people especially during lockdown have learned that it's a way of, of managing your mental health because you're, you're able to kind of focus. It's kind of like mindfulness in some sort of way. But I think Bake Off, with their representation, has, has, has broadened the sphere of what it can and could be. I think in, in the early days of Bake Off, it was very much kind of saying all these different types of people bake. And that did broaden it up. And I do think Bake Off is partly responsible for this kind of influx of people wanting to learn to bake. But then I think as it moved on, and especially as it kind of moved in the UK to Channel 4, which was three or four years ago, it sort of moved into slightly more creativity now. And so they've kind of broadened the base. They've said, here's the kind of people who can bake. It doesn't just need to be the housewife at the kitchen table. It can be anyone who wants to explore something and have a bit of fun. You enjoy the bit of, there's a bit of innuendo to it, which is always fun. And they've kind of broadened the idea that it can be used to help your brain. But then they've also now started to move it into, have you thought about creating like a cake bust? Or like, have you thought about creating jelly art? And they're now beginning to, to draw in trends from around the world to kind of say, here's some really in- interesting and in- in- engaging things that you can do with baking. So I think Bake Off itself is responsible for a huge breadth of baking interest and engagement. But I think it's definitely smashed down not just gender roles, but like what baking is and can be. I think it's kind of broadened the possibilities of it. I mean, actually, for me, I don't bake things that are that exciting because I just can't be bothered. I don't really want to. I'll just make, I'll make a basic thing, but I'll make it a bit more exciting in my own way. So I'll generally add new flavours or spices to it. But I really bake bread, brownies, uh, biscuits sometimes, cookies sometimes, or like a tart or a pie, but they're all fairly basic. But for me, that's what baking is. For me, baking is a way of giving myself a bit of mindfulness where I'm able to just put some music on and ignore the world until I've created something. And that's just for me. So I don't really... I think that's partly why Bake Off worked for me because I wasn't really looking for a life after Bake Off in terms of cooking shows. And I don't like being filmed baking things. And whenever I do get filmed baking things anymore... I get really stressed by it because I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be the guy from Bake Off who makes a really bad cake. So I get really nervous about that. So I like keeping that private again. I've kind of, I've taken, taken it back, if that makes sense. I've taken back baking to be my own thing now, which I love. It's also worth noting, I didn't mention it, the gays. <laughs> because uh, the gays love Bake Off. It is like a thing. And I think that's fascinating. And I don't really have fully fleshed out thoughts on that yet. But I think there's something about that liberation from the domestic and that liberation from separating something from what it used to be thought of as that's inherently queer. And I think that 
a lot of the LGBTQ plus community really relate to that. But also, Bake Off, for the LGBTQ plus community, Bake Off represents kindness. And I think kindness lacks in that community so much, both within and without that community. But looking into, looking into a world or into a tent where everyone is kind, thoughtful, looking after each other, I think that's, it's like, it's like watching a kind of, uh, watching a home that you might not have yet. And I think that's lovely. So it's definitely worth noting the gay following um, of Bake Off. I, I think what you said earlier on in the interview about, I don't want to be Michael from Bake Off. I want to be Michael who was on Bake Off. Yes. You are moving on. You've got a new podcast that, you, that you've been doing. Um, please tell me a little bit about it so I know exactly what to Google and download as soon as I end this call. <laughs> So um, I, I got Twitter after Bake Off and I got really into Twitter, despite the trolls. And um, I mentioned earlier that I got, lo- I got lots of trolling from people saying that, uh, that I was not masculine enough because I was crying. And what I found really fascinating was that most of those comments were from men, not from women. It was men that minded that I was crying and it was men that minded that I held myself or behaved in a certain type of way. And I, I've been fascinated by that for a while. And I was chatting to my friend Mark, Mark Watson, who is a comedian and writer about this. And out of that conversation kind of grew this idea of a podcast where we would speak to different men about what being a man would be what, what, or what being a man is for them. And then out of that, we kind of went, well, let's not just get men to talk about it. Let's get everyone to talk about it. So uh, we came up with this podcast, which comes out 7th of December this year. Um, A trailer's going up on the internet this week, which is very exciting. Um, But it's going to be about different people talking about what masculinity is and what it has meant to them throughout their lives. So we've got some really interesting people. We've got some men. We've got some trans people. We've got some non-binary people. We've got some women. We've got everyone, anyone who wants to have a chat. Um, and the idea of it is basically just to kind of speak about their experiences of masculinity and kind of learn from them. Um, what's quite nice is that I'm a brown gay man and that Mark is a white straight man. So our terms of reference are very different. <laughs> and um, it tends to be that if we're talking to one guest, one of us will know what they're talking about and the other one will have no idea. Um, and I think that's fascinating. So, um, but that's the only thing I'm really doing outside of my normal life after Bake Off I went back to drop to work and went back to my job and um so I still work like every day Monday to Friday every week and I like that because it's that's me I'm just Michael I'm continuing with my life um but the podcast is like a fun extra that I've got to do which is great so please listen I hope it doesn't flop it's the first thing I've done that's actually my idea (laughs) I can't wait to listen I think that's such a great idea. And, and there is, it's like what you were saying, you know, even in your hosts, you have such scope over this massive kind of issue. I read a quote the other day that blew my mind and I'm, I'm about to just butcher it. Um, oh, I love that. I can't wait. can't <laughs> wait. Okay. Okay. Poise yourself. <laughs> it was um, men who fear to be seen as feminine Fear to be treated the way they treat women. Oh, I don't think you butchered that. I think you got that bang on. I completely agree. I think it's so inherently misogynistic. And what I find really fascinating, especially within the queer community, is that misogyny is deep-rooted and there's a fear of looking too camp or appearing too femme or, or anything like this. And we had some really interesting conversations with a drag queen called Crystal, who was on Drag Race UK, Um and they were really fascinating about talking about bridging that gap between masculine and feminine and how that threatens some conceptions of masculinity. 
I think it's really I completely 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 agree, and I I definitely have have acted in that way previously. I think I've thought that men are acting too feminine, and therefore I've looked down on them. And when I came out, one of the one of the biggest challenges I think I faced was working out what kind of gay I was, as if that's even a thing. But for me, what I'd seen was on TV was these camp feminine figures who were gay, and that was that was who they were. That was fine, but I couldn't associate myself with that, and so therefore, for a long time, I resisted being gay because I was like, well, I'm not that. And there was a misogyny in what I was thinking and how I was thinking it. And I think it's really fascinating, and and I completely agree with what with that with that quote. I think it doesn't just apply to men's treatment of women, which is generally appalling but it also looks at their treatment of of trans people or men within the gay community looking upon other members of the gay community or the queer community in different ways i think it's it's not even just in the communities it's in politics isn't it i mean that's a whole sec- second podcast but you're absolutely right <laughs> that's your season two <laughs> we have achieved so much in this interview we've got the festive special for bake-off you've got season two of your podcast Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you so much for answering as openly and honestly as possible. I really appreciate it. Honestly, this podcast, you've asked me so many questions that no one has ever asked about Bake Off before and I've loved it. And that concludes my chat with my forever star baker, Michael Chakraverty. You can find Michael's podcast at Menkind Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. We've also put links to the podcast and Michael's social media handles in the show notes. Highly recommend. Please stick around after the credits as we will also be rolling the trailer for the Menkind Podcast, which drops Monday the 7th of December. And for those of you in Sydney, tickets to my one-woman show, The Apologists, are available and the booking link is in the show notes. See you in the foyer afterwards. This is fun. We should do this again sometime. This podcast was produced by Hugo Chiarella for Unlikely Productions. The dulcet melody that you are listening to right now was crafted by Robert Tripolino. If you reckon this podcast is a bit of all right, please tell your mates, post about the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find the show. Come on, get a girl out there. You can also follow me at Gjoska on Instagram. Yeah, I know, that's... G-J-O-S-C-A. Not my best, not my worst. You could also follow me at ScorthorneGab on Twitter. It's my name, but backwards. Hey, we should do this again sometime. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. How are we going to introduce these, Mark? Well, it's quite important to introduce it right because everyone tells you the first 30 seconds of a podcast are where you can win or lose it. It might have been a good 20 seconds, so we've got about nine left. Hook them in, hook them in. Okay. We're two men. We don't even really know each other, but we're, we're very interesting. <laughs> please listen. Maybe that's a good ad, actually. It's just, please listen. If you do it on a count of three. That's a good idea. One, two, three. Please, please listen. listen. That's how advertising works, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We promise it'll be at least seven out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Let's be real. I don't particularly like sports. <laughs> I find that fascinating for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's not every day you get to hear an Olympic medalist say, don't really like sport. Yeah, that's the title of the podcast, I think. <laughs> I don't like sport with Tom Daly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So when you were performing a version of yourself that wasn't yourself, when you were trying to kind of portray that masculinity, what did you find yourself doing to perform that? I wore two clashing patterns instead of three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the perfect disguise. <laughs> I said, no one's going to figure out what if I just move the zebra print with the leopard print and not add the tiger print. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Having grown up in Bristol myself, that would definitely camouflage it. <laughs> Thankfully, that uh, MasterChef coin just about kept me going. <laughs> God of all men, though, I like that. That should be on your CV, I think. We had Kyle, God of all men. I'll take it. Oh, I think I said God among men. God of all men is a big, big claim, isn't it? I am atheist, though, so maybe this is actually going against who I am. As Would a... you believe in God if you were God, though? Tricky one, isn't it? Maybe I don't believe in him because you are I him. am. This has gone really weird. Yeah, but it's I not what we expected to be it. talking about. <laughs> The overwhelming feeling I had when I was about five was there'd been some sort of administrative error. There's been a mistake, <laughs> I didn't order this. And then the first time I remember having diarrhea, I was delighted because I was finally weeing out of my bum like girls do. <laughs> Pretty painful way to get there, but I... <laughs> silver lining. You've chosen to keep your hair, your chest yeah. hair and your hairy armpits. <laughs> why, why? I don't know if you had to yell that at him. Hairy armpits. Hairy armpits. Can <laughs> you say it really low and sultry for us? Hairy armpits. And that is the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe the trailer for the series? <laughs> you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Menkind Podcast. First episode out on December the 7th on Acast, Apple, Spotify, you know, places you get your podcasts. Um, please like and subscribe. I haven't had a podcast before. Bye.